but it takes intellectual maturity to say, I don't know everything and I'm willing to learn about things that are uncomfortable for me as part of my responsibility to lift the burdens of others. Welcome to Backseat Driver, the podcast hosted by two practicing psychotherapists, where we boil down years of experience with clients young and old to teach you how to do the what to do to improve your life and relationships. I'm Mark Yamada, clinical psychologist in Seattle. And I'm Nikki Bennett, licensed clinical social worker in Salt Lake City. Everyone wants to be treated with kindness, respect, and love. Differences in diversity stir interest and curiosity in some, while others react with fear and anger. Only real understanding and accurate knowledge can dispel fear, heal wounds, and build bridges of inclusion. Everyone can make a difference in making the world a more welcoming place for people who are LGBTQ+. In our show today, we'll be talking with Richard Osler. Richard is an author and an advocate and is the founder of Listen, Learn, and Love, a resource center for LGBTQ plus knowledge, support, and advocacy. He has held roles as a leader in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and has championed for those who are on the fringes or feel ostracized from the mainstream. He does an amazing job of guiding people through rigid thinking and attitudes in an effort to promote loving understanding. His resource center is geared primarily for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, sometimes known as Mormon. However, the concepts and resources are applicable to everyone. So welcome. Good morning. Welcome, Richard. And we are so excited to have you on our show today. What experiences inspired you to create Listen, Learn, and Love? Thank you, Mark and Nikki. It's an honor to be here, and you're both and everybody behind the scenes are doing great work with your efforts. Um, I I was um, a leader of a local congregation of Latter-day Saints, and in that faith community where there's high density of Latter-day Saints, we congregate in some areas as those that are unmarried, 18 to 31. So I was the congregation leader as a married father of six of a congregation of about 300 Latter-day Saints that are unmarried between those ages. And it's similar to be a pastor. It's an unpaid volunteer assignment. In the course of that assignment, I had a couple of gay men in our congregation. And it was the first time I listened to gay people tell me what it was like to be gay. Um, even at 55, I'd really never heard stories of people from in that community. I'd heard, mostly heard stories of straight people telling me about LGBTQ people. And I just felt these two men changed my heart. And I recognized that a great deal that I had picked up in my life was I'm not accurate. I did what I call a hard drive reset to use computer terms. And I just felt an impression from God that I had a bunch of homophobia and transphobia um, wired into me um, and I needed to start from scratch. And so I just kind of wiped all my conclusions away from this group of people. And Heavenly Father said, well, you ought to just talk to them and then you'll see them the way I see them. And there's some real important principles of ministering and being a good um, Christian within that framework that I'm still trying to do, but 
um, as I connected more and more with this community and I met with hundreds and hundreds now in this community, I just um, felt impressed to start a, a support group um, called Listen, Learn and Love. Um, it's supportive of the church that I'm a member of, but it's also supportive of LGBTQ people and trying to bring us together as the same human family. And my responsibility to follow the life of the Savior to um, lift other people's burdens that have a harder road um, that society has kind of put on the margins. So that's a little bit, Mark, of, of my journey to start Listen, Learn, and Love. Thank you. Thank you. What have you come across as you have served? Uh, what are the most difficult challenges that you see faced by a person who is LGBTQ in the faith community? Um, a father, an LDS father of a, who has two gay sons, probably framed it up for me the very best. He says, my sons are in a double bind. They love our church and they want to fully participate in the church, but being gay is something they can't undo. <laughs> it's something they didn't bring on. It's something they can't um, have go away. It's part of their, it's part of, it's a characteristic of their, of who they are. It's a beautiful characteristic and they would love not to spend their life alone. Um, they would love a life partner. So there's, it's very difficult when I was single and dating, I didn't face any um, trade-offs. I found my wife and could fully participate in my faith and have a family. But for people that are gay or lesbian, um, that is becomes very difficult to do both. And they want to do both. They'd love to share their life with somebody and they'd love to fully participate in the faith and not have their faith community turn their back on them if they feel that their path is to have a partner, a life partner. So that just creates empathy for other people's roads. I think we have to hear stories. I had to hear stories of gay people tell me what like to be gay before I really understood people on that road. Um, I think that's part of, um, the, so that's just a challenge that um, LGBTQ people face. Now I just use gay and lesbian, um, bisexual people of course could marry um, someone of the opposite sex, um, but there's still complicated parts of that journey. Transgender is completely different when a gender identity doesn't match biological sex. So that's kind of a different category, but all of those are hard because you don't fit in to the norm. You don't have a feeling of belonging. People like you aren't represented in your faith community. And so it's hard to feel like people you like you have a, have a need and are valued and a feeling of belonging. So we need to work hard to make sure everybody feels welcome and who they are is needed. What do you think becomes the hardest part for the community itself? Good question. I think I hold beliefs that were fundamentally wrong, um, that even my own faith community no longer taught, like, um, that being gay is something, I did something to become gay. And so I can be, do something to unbecome gay, or I had a, it was part of a faulty parenting style, or I was sexually assaulted, or I looked at pornography. So 
we have created a narrative in society and in many faith communities that someone did something to become LGBTQ. Um, but what I've come to believe is that Heavenly Father created people to be LGBTQ. And it's part of the beautiful diversity that's needed as part of this world. And so if we look at people as on equal moral footing that are LGBTQ and not somehow lesser or not somehow that something went wrong and God is displeased with them, then I think we do better not to hurt people. That doesn't change church teachings in my faith, um, but it just puts everybody on the same moral footing that everybody needs to look in the mirror, uh, Mark, and feel like they're created as they're supposed to be created and they're not a mistake. And then I think it helps them to connect easier with God. If they feel they're, who they are is who they're meant to be, then I think they can feel like God loves them and can get better direction in their life. Uh, I've often worked with a number of uh, clients that are LGBTQ and very often describe that their parents will send them into therapy in hopes that the therapy will actually cure or change their feelings of their identities. And I rarely ever, in fact, I can't think of a time where I've actually seen that work. And it is often a very difficult dialogue for me to have with the parents, especially if this is a young person, that these ideas that this is a curable condition or we just need to do the right thing or my child needs to come to her senses or his senses and kind of quote, quote, get with the program. Uh, I've never found that to actually be helpful, even though I, I can understand, I do understand where the parents are coming from because of their great fears of their child seeming to deviate from the norm of what the parents had always anticipated or wanted. But I do find that that pressure to try to make somebody become something different is often actually the cause or the source of where a great deal of conflict, depression, and heartache happen. Uh, Nikki, have you seen that in your practice too? Yes, I've absolutely seen that in my practice. In fact, baby Nikki, you know, the therapist baby Nikki, one of my first cases was when I was doing an internship at LDS Family Services, and I had this incredible young man come in who mom and dad had had no idea that he was gay whatsoever. And then he had his wisdom teeth out. And while he was under sedation, told his parents. And so the first person I saw was dad who came in just in tears, devastated. And I think really wanted to change his son's orientation. And that was a really difficult situation because I could see dad's pain, but also I wanted to be this young man's advocate and ally and I was inexperienced. It was really difficult. Um, recently, one of my clients that I saw years back for OCD reached out to me from his mission and said, I'm really, really struggling. You know, could we meet somehow? And, and I had suspected early on that this young man was gay, but he had never said anything. And so I just treated him where he was at for checking light switches and such. And, um, I, you know, I started to think about it and my own OCD crept in. Well, gosh, I'm not licensed in this place that this young man's serving, et cetera, et cetera. And 
So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just see you as a coach and I'm going to do it for free. And it has been the most rewarding, remarkable experience of my entire career thus far. Um, having this young man come out to me and say, I've never told anyone this. And my mission president set me up with a therapist here, but I just can't tell him, I trust you, I'm gay. And I think I need to go home because of that. And we have had just the most incredible, you know, where we're both in, ending up in tears saying, there's actually nothing wrong with you. You were made perfect in God's eyes and you have every right to be on your mission and be a worthy missionary for heavenly father. You're not, you're not breaking any rules. You're not doing anything wrong by being gay. So those are a couple that stand out for me. Yeah. Richard, what, what, what experiences have you had where parents come to you and seek your guidance or even your help to help them through this adjusting period? Uh, what, do you, what, what are some of the memories or the experiences that you have had? What, what do you remember about that? Um, just to follow up with Mark and Nikki, I, I'm this, in the same place you are. I'm not a therapist. I'm a small business owner. But I've come to the same conclusions you have about conversion therapy. Some people even say everything's possible with the atonement of Jesus Christ. Certainly, if I just pray hard enough or go to conversion therapy or make deals with God, I can become straight. And I've heard, you know, the endless deals. And my feeling is I'm right-handed. I have blue eyes. I can't bargain with God to be left-handed or have brown eyes. Those are, those are characteristics, attributes of me that make me me, that God is pleased about. And that's the way I feel about sexual orientation or gender identity. I, too, haven't ever met with anybody <clears throat> that has been able to change their sexual orientation or their gender identity. That doesn't mean um, the atonement can still help them and therapists can help them to heal broken hearts and to give them tools to move forward in their lives. But I've come to the same conclusions, both of you. And Nikki, what an honor for this young man, to, this elder, to feel safe opening up to you. And I think that we need to create safe communities so that people can open up because that's when they can get help. And I'm glad that you kind of went, um, were flexible enough in your own profession to say, this is how I'm going to help him. You did the right thing, Nikki. Um, I think parents kind of go through a bit of a grieving process where um, sometimes someone will come out to them and they've been processing this alone for years and they come out to their parents and their parents are processing it for the first time. And so there will be sort of the cycles of grief um, in a different way that get to acceptance. There may be anger, there may be um, sadness over lost hopes for an LGBTQ child, but most parents get to the point of just acceptance. And uh, my advice to parents is go slow, keep the communication channels open, um, pray to God to get personal revelation. You as a parent will know how to help your LGBTQ child. I think your goal is to keep them emotionally healthy um, and to get them to um, self-determine their best road in life and be open that that may be separating from their faith community. I invite every LGBTQ person in the LDS faith to stay in the LDS faith. 
but I also let them self-determine their best path for them and I honor that. And I don't want to make them the hero one day and the villain the next day if they choose a path. Um, and I just invite them to do the very best they can. So that's my general advice for parents is, is just what I said. I think mm -hmm. it's good for parents to connect with other parents that are on this road, um, that have been down this road for five or 10 years, because they often have the perspective of being on this road for a while that can help parents new to this road. When you get a set of parents who have been further down the road with their child, what do they usually give as advice for new parents regarding what does, what, what does their child really need from them? What is most helpful? The, I think the most helpful thing is, is no agenda love. And it's this goal, I'm going to keep the communication channel open and I'm going to keep my kid alive because their kid might be suicidal. And you two know that. And <laughs> I think they just need to say, this is about keeping my kid alive. This is about creating an environment where my child will tell me everything that's going on in their life, even if it's things that I wouldn't naturally approve of. Um, because my goal is to keep my kid alive and keep the communication channel open so I know what's going on. I think therapy for both of you is a possibility. Um, just to connect with, um, for your child that's LGBTQ, connect with LGBTQ therapists that have experience in this space. And you may need a therapist too, just to walk through the emotional challenges that you face personally that you may need a therapist to help you with. Those are some general thoughts that come to mind. Do you find that parents have a great deal of fear and shame that somehow they haven't done a good job as being a parent if this happens in their family? Uh, yes, Mark, a lot do. And my faith is kind of, it doesn't teach that anymore, but used to teach that maybe it was a faulty parenting style that caused a child to be LGBTQ. And our church doesn't teach that anymore. The book I wrote, Listen, Learn, and Love, is clear about that is not. So a parent shouldn't feel that. A parent may feel shame about having an LGBTQ child, but that often just makes the LGBTQ child feel shame that this part about them, the parent's embarrassed about or doesn't want to talk about or doesn't want to tell anybody about. But if the LGBTQ child says, mom and dad, you can tell people I'm LGBTQ um, and has given them that permission, then if parents will talk about it with friends and family, it helps signal to the child that they're not embarrassed about this part of their child. And it helps the child accept themselves and not be sad or embarrassed about them. So parents signaling is key to help their children navigate this. If they're still love their child or proud of their child, accept this part of their child. Um, it helps the child move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do see that quite a bit in clinical practice where children learn that something is not okay or that people think something's not okay, especially if it's an undiscussable subject. If we yeah. never talk about it, if we never bring it up, then there's this assumption, even sometimes parents will intentionally or sometimes even subconsciously unintentionally 
communicate this message that we don't talk about this or keep this quiet or you know this is this is going to make it bad for your sibling at school or something like this where the implied message is it's wrong it's bad it's not okay therefore it's not a discussable subject and when things can't be brought up or discussed then one of the natural things that happens is a person's going to end up feeling like this is really unwelcome or will get the message there's something wrong or broken and somehow I've got to figure out a way to come back into compliance or conformity. Nikki, what are your experiences with things like that where somebody's trying telling you, I feel like I have to fit into a certain mold, otherwise I feel like my parents are unhappy with me or it's just not okay. We can't ever talk about it. I could never bring it up to talk to them about it. Well, I mean, this particular guy, he had told his parents and thank goodness they were loving and kind, but I think he's feeling similarly around his own community. And I think we create a lot of that. I know in my community and even in my family, I've heard several people that I love say, you know, I'm fine with it. I don't care, do what you want, but I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it and I don't want to see it. And I think, well, would you say that to somebody that you loved who was heterosexual? Of course you wouldn't. Of course you'd want to hear about their love. You'd want to hear about their engagement. You'd want to hear about all of it, right? So that's a struggle. I think what I would say to a client is, Mark, the wise words I learned from you on one of our podcast episodes was that even though it's at me, it's not about me. And so it's helping them understand that, you know, really those opinions, those, those words that are spoken, those actions that are taken or not taken, they're really about the deliverer and about their fear and their own shame. And so it's helping them build, you know, self-determination and empathy for themselves and self-compassion, self-compassion, self-compassion. That's one I go to over and over. In fact, with this young man, I said, there's nothing that needs fixing here, elder. You're made just as God designed you to be perfect and beautiful, just the way you are. And you have every right to be out in the mission field as much as somebody else. And so it's helping them accept that and love themselves. And so what I've told him is, Hey, you know, I just had a conversation with him this morning, in fact, and, and last week we touched base and he's, he was having a really hard time and said, I think I'm going to go home because I'm having these obsessive thoughts about it and these triggers. And I said, well, help me understand why the trigger is a problem because triggers and thoughts aren't who we are. So I've been working with him on actually going towards those triggers and those thoughts and then practicing self-compassion. And what he said this morning was, gosh, I'm not, I'm not suffering now that I'm accepting this and loving myself. I'm not suffering. I hope that answered your question. That was kind of a roundabout way to, to get there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Richard, what, what do you, what do you see? What, what are some of the things you uh, discuss with individuals that are struggling to communicate with their parents about their identities where they may not be necessarily worried about their identities, that they're pretty solid or becoming so that this is who I am. I don't carry shame or embarrassment about it. But how do I talk to my parents so that I can maintain still family connections 
what is your advice or guidance for a person in that situation? Every it's a great question. Every situation is different. Um, I, I think the, if a parent's you know not willing to hear the story of their own LGBTQ child and their LGBTQ child is tried, perhaps the parents are willing to hear other stories of LGBTQ children. Um, in the LDS community, Charlie Bird, the former BYU Cosmos books at Deseret Book and. Um, sometimes it's easier for parents to read a story on their own terms versus discussing it with their own LGBTQ child, and that gives them the tools to then talk to their own LGBTQ child. So sometimes um, podcasts, um, a book, therapists like you two um, can help a parent develop the tools then to engage in their LGBTQ child. So if if you're, you know, LGBTQ and your parents won't engage in this topic with you, um, those are just some ideas that perhaps they could read stories or podcasts or talk to other parents so that they can directly talk to you because the family needs to stay together. And that's based on communication and trust and openness. And it's a two-way street. So hopefully parents are willing to do this. Maybe parents can do what I did. <laughs> is do a hard drive reset and just say, I call it the trap of unearned opinions. I, I earned, I developed a lot of opinions about a group of people that I had never met with directly. And at 55, that was a, a bunch of opinions. And, and it took, you know, to, not to say I'm humble, but it took a lot of humility to say, I'm not going to develop opinions about a group of people until I meet with them. Um, I have white teenagers, obviously, at my home. I don't ask my white teenagers how black teenagers feel. Um, I ask black teenagers, or I don't have an opinion until I ask black teenagers. So I just hope parents will say, I've got to learn about this to help meet the needs of my LGBTQ child. Um, and, I, and I can't do what you both are suggesting they don't do is let's don't talk about it. That just adds to the shame. And it makes this part about an LGBTQ child, they're embarrassed, feel embarrassed about it if our parents say, I don't wanna talk about this. How do you help somebody? What, what have you found that helps a person do that hard reset when you realize that they are living so concrete in their thinking, so rigid in their thinking, how do you help them develop that abstract reasoning or to be able to see it from a concept or a principle where- Good question. I, yeah, I think yeah. there's two things that come to mind. In my book, um, it's called Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. It's on the bookshelves at Deseret Book. Um, it's on Amazon, and it's mostly stories. Um, I, I felt to do these hard drive resets, I could share the science, which is important, um, but I felt like telling letting most of my book is not about me it's about lgbtq people sharing their stories against different topics and parents of lgbtq children that have had to be on this road for a while um, that's that's what helped me do a hard drive reset is stories so and then the second so i think that's one answer to your question i encourage listeners to read this book um, if you want to learn more about how to support LGBTQ people, and if you're in a faith community, 
I argue that's part of your responsibility in your faith community. Your commitment to your faith is to help people that have a harder road. And this book is designed to do that. The second part is I, I, in my book, talk a lot, use a lot of church leader quotes to help guide me and other Latter-day Saints. One of the quotes I use is from one of our church leaders, Elder Uchtdorf. He says, we can block the growth and knowledge our Heavenly Father intends for us. How often has the Holy Spirit tried to tell us something we needed to know, but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew? And another quote from one of my favorite LDS Institute teachers, S. Michael Wilcox, in some matters, it's better to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure. This will still leave us a great deal to be certain about while maintaining a humility to learn. So I think to be able to be in this gray is a great spot, but it takes intellectual maturity to say, I don't know everything and I'm willing to learn about things that are uncomfortable for me as part of my responsibility to lift the burdens of others that I may be adding to their burdens because I'm uninformed about certain topics. So to me, I'm still trying to do that, but I do that through listening to other people's stories. And that's why your podcast is so important. And also just spiritual impressions from Heavenly Father on how to meet the needs of others. And I guess following the counsel of my own church leaders to make sure these massive iron gates aren't part of my life. And that I'm, the massive iron gates perhaps represent this very binary thinking you're talking about, this very black and white um, that maybe keeps us in these behind these gates, but to really grow and learn and to help often we have to get past those gates. That can be a tremendously fearful moment <laughs> to open those gates. Uh, Nikki, what, what are your experiences? Uh, uh, you must have some, I know you have in your practice of helping uh, a person open those gates of and face fear which perhaps is the biggest thing that keeps uh, learning and listening and loving from actually happening. You know, one of my favorite tools actually is Byron Katie's work, which is ironically called the work. And it's kind of a cognitive behavioral ther therapy, but she says, you know, when you argue with reality, you lose, but only a hundred percent of the time. And so I think I've mentioned that here before, but <laughs> Her work is actually tremendous. There's a worksheet called judge your neighbor. And so when I have a resistant client that doesn't even see that there's a gate there or an iron, you know, an iron clad gate, this is where I start. So you start with a series of judgment statements. I feel fill in the blank, frustrated, angry, annoyed, hurt by this person because they should or should not fill in the blank. And there's a series of statements. And then what she does is she addresses each of those judgment statements. So let's say um, I'm upset with God because I should not be gay. Let's just take that one. The first question would be, is it true? Well, yes, it's true. Okay. Can you know for certain that you're upset with God because you shouldn't be gay? Lots of times people want to argue and say, yes, I can be certain. 
I'm like, okay, prove it to me. If you were in a court of law, how could you prove to me that you should not be gay and that's why you're upset with God? They can't. So the answer to number two is always no. The next question is, what would your life be like if you continued to believe the story that you should not be gay? Well, I'd feel hopeless and miserable and sad and depressed and probably even suicidal. Okay, what would life be like if you were able to let go of that story? I'd be able to love myself. I'd have hope. I'd have joy. I'd have peace in my life. Okay, so can you see a reason to let that story go? Yes. That's when you move then to inquiry, which is asking for or doing turnarounds. So the first one would be to the opposite. I am not angry with God because I'm gay. What are three pieces of evidence of that? Another example would be, I'm angry with myself because I'm gay. Okay. And another one would be, I am grateful to God that I'm gay. So it's basically taking any, any of those really hard, you know, stories that we have and, and stories that all live in our ego. Our ego is just the story of who we are. So it might tell us we're better than others. It might tell us we're less than others. They're all stories. So when I'm a baby and my mom forgets to change me, my bum hurts and I cry. I'm not crying because my mom doesn't love me enough, right? Or that she neglected me. I have no story. Stories are all learned. So it's just examining where those stories are keeping us stuck and how really the story is what's causing you suffering. It's not the fact that you're gay. It's your story around what, what it means to be gay. So it's untangling that. And then again, practicing self-compassion and learning to stop resisting because whatever you resist persists. And so it's like that, you know, in one of our episodes on letting go, we talked about trying to pry your fist open. And the more you do it, the, the tighter your fist holds on. But if you just cradle your fist, it will start to relax. How about you, Mark? I'm curious. The same question for you. Yeah. One of the things that I have found the most helpful is, uh, and I use these principles on myself as well, uh, not always so successfully, but I'm constantly learning. But what I have found is the way Richard described it in the title of his organization and his book, Listen, Learn, and Love, really holds true. I actually follow those principles and try to advocate and teach those to people that one of the first steps of dispelling fear is ultimately, I, I look at it this way. I often tell my clients, the path to growth and healing is learning. And I often find that difficulties with listening are a huge obstruction or the ironclad gate to uh, further uh, knowledge and understanding because of fear. And people don't listen because they have already pre-decided something. So I often talk about things like judgment or prejudgment and help individuals realize that they hadn't realized that they had already made a decision. Even the word prejudice is built in English. Prejudice is the, you know, you've got the prefix pre, you know, pre in front of it, meaning you know, to make a judgment ahead of time. And psychologically, what happens is that when we make a decision, whether you even are consciously aware that you make a decision or not, our minds and our actions are designed 
to be congruent. So if I make a decision ahead of time, I am more likely to do things to make that congruent or bring it about. That's often I try to teach my clients that that's actually the process of the self-fulfilling prophecy is whether I was aware or whether a person was, whether my client was aware or not, you know, in, in this case, they had pre-made a decision and then their behaviors would follow. So if I make a decision that, oh, I'm not gonna like that, then I usually don't like it. But if we could help people learn to listen, including listen to themselves, to their thoughts or their feelings, very much like the way you had just walked us through, Nikki, some type of experience that brings in awareness. That I find is a huge key. And Richard, this may be right on line with what you were talking about, a hard reset, is that nobody can really make a significant change if we don't have a level of awareness to realize that, hey, maybe I don't really know that I don't really know about what I thought I knew. What I have found is that in order to really overcome fear, I've got to pursue and focus on gaining knowledge and good knowledge and useful knowledge and accurate knowledge. So an experiential exercise that I often give to clients is I have them imagine that they are a movie director and to take different camera angles and imagine what it's like to be the character on the other end. And I find things like that are ways to help increase the ability to take perspective or to come out of my own self or my own center. And when clients do that and practice seeing and thinking and feeling what it may be like from somebody else's perspective, I often find that that then creates an aha moment, which is another way of saying they've gained a piece of knowledge or insight. And usually that will help dispel some of that fear and help them open up those iron gates to greater levels of awareness. And then they are more free to be able to listen and learn and act and respond in more helpful or loving ways. I love that. I love both of what both of you said. I love. Richard, when you think back on all the years of experience that you've had, are there some stories of individuals that you have walked with that really, really stick out in your mind as really meaningful, very significant to you or to somebody else? Great question. Um, just to follow up on that last conversation is one of the fruits of what you both are teaching is, in my opinion, less fear. I, since I've tried to learn of different groups of people firsthand, I have far less fear than I used to have about people that are different from me. And I think of a scripture, perfect love casteth out fear. And I certainly don't claim to have perfect love but I've developed love for all of the human family, undocumented workers, LGBTQ, people of different races, women, because I've been willing to listen to their stories. And that's, it's like your point, Mark, I've seen the other side of the camera lens 
and I've done the things that Nikki said, and I don't claim to be at the finish line, and I don't know what biases I still hold, but one of the fruits of that in my own life is I have very little fear right now of my human family. And I sleep really well at night. <laughs> We're still in the middle of a pandemic. I'm not, it's not a head in the sand type of feeling. So there's difficult social issues right now, but I, it's sort of brought me to a higher level. I feel like I'm at the 30 or 40,000 foot level of seeing the human family as the same human family instead of just in my bunker seeing white cisgender 55-year-old business owner men um, that I maybe had seen a little bit. So that's, and it's, I look at what Christ taught in his ministry of being with people on the margins. And so what you're teaching and what we're doing in this podcast is trying to do, in my feeling, what Christ is, did in his ministry these people on the margins weren't there because God put them on the margins. God didn't put that gay missionary that Nikki's talking to on the margins. Society's put him on the margins because he's just heard negative things about people like him his whole life. And Nikki's telling him that he should love this part about him. So I think that's what Christ did in his ministry. So now to answer your question, um, there, it's just a general there's no one story. I've done, you know, 300 podcasts now with LGBTQ. I've met privately with those that don't feel good about being on the podcast, but I just, you know, they've taught me at first, I guess I thought I would be the good Samaritan kind of rescue LGBTQ people, but they're rescuing me. They are teaching me things about kindness and empathy and compassion um, and how to serve others and how to walk in difficult spaces. Um, I am a better person. They are saving me because of the things they're teaching me, especially about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm grateful for that. Um, and it's helped me be a better person. Um, so, you know, but there's heartbreaking stories. I've met with so many people that are suicidal and just... Um, you know, this, it just, it's so difficult for them to even find a way to forward or to have hope. And we have to hear stories and we have to create better messaging around LGBTQ people. Renee Brown talks about common enemy intimacy. And I'll read this quote, common enemy intimacy is the opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share is simply we hate the same people, the intimacy we experience is intense, immediately gratifying, an easy way to discharge our outrage and pain. It is not, however, fuel for real connection. So you two understand this, but if I just create community around hating another group of people, that does create community. <laughs> but it's not um, the kind of things that we should be doing as a human family. I stand for my political party on its own merits. I don't need to demonize people or invent theories about them or make up stories to demonize people in a different political party or a different faith or a different sexual orientation. And then we come together in a better way in our differences. So it doesn't cost me anything in my own beliefs to do that. But I find I sleep better. I have less anxiety, less stress when I don't create this common enemy intimacy I don't go to church and try to talk negatively about other religions at church. Just another religion of another group of people trying to do the best they can. 
and I want them to be successful. I, I don't want my faith's success to come at the expense of other faiths. I want their faith to be successful also. Um, I want LGBTQ people to be successful, even if they feel their path is a same-sex marriage in, in some cases. I want that marriage to succeed. If that's something that they felt is their path, then I'm going to honor that path and not pass judgment. That's kind of a long tangent answer um, without a specific example, just some general thoughts. Your words uh, are so beautiful. I, I had goosebumps this entire, this entire hour. <laughs> Oh my goodness. It reminds me of one of my favorite verses from the Dhammapada, which says, hatred never ceases with hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. I just love that phrase. One of the things that I also notice as uh, a clinician is that I have had a lot of experiences over the years that have given me a lot of knowledge and understanding. And I know this is true for both of you as well. And as, as I try to do these concepts that we're talking about today, to listen, to learn, to be loving, I find that that can sometimes cause fear and anxiety in other people. Uh, even in my clients, sometimes that can happen when we're dealing with a clinical or a mental health issue where I know the bigger picture. So I do have confidence about what to do and how to proceed, but the client uh, themselves aren't always so uh, aware of this because it's so new for them and it causes them a lot of fear. So I see a couple of a couple of uh, things that can happen. There is a type of client who will then trust me and they'll kind of get behind me and help me guide them along to open up their eyes of understanding. And then I'll have other clients who become more resistant with fear to the idea of looking at something very different. Uh, Nikki, what are your experiences of how when you proceed clinically and you're working with a client, when they either don't fully understand or for some reason, those fears of that iron gate and going outside of it pop up, what's that like for you to have somebody that you're working with detect that and you can see that whatever you're doing in an effort to help is actually you can see their fear level rising <laughs> i'm giggling because i'm reminded of a group that i led several years ago it was a sex addiction group and these particular gentlemen were addicted to pornography and my theory is that whether it's sex addiction or gambling or food or drugs or shopping or numbing, we're all addicted to something that takes our pain away. But, and, and I think that what we're really addicted to is shame to that belief that we're not enough and we're too much at the same time. And so in treating this particular, well, in treating anything like that, eating disorders or anything, I always start with, Hey, what's the shame story you're telling yourself because you're not your behaviors. And so 
I had encouraged this particular group to stop getting so caught up in whether or not they looked at pornography and instead get caught up in catching themselves in that shame cycle and stepping out of it. And one of these young men, you could just tell he was terrified by what I was saying. Like the resistance was palpable. Um, he, he really was so addicted to shame that he, he couldn't see another way of stepping out of it. And sadly, he eventually left the group. And I, my hope is that someday he'll be ready to recognize his own worth. Because I think until you do that, I have another guy I'm working with right now, same thing. And, and both of these young men happen to be members of the LDS church. They're both very steeped in fear and shame and in the belief that I should be able to stop this if, if I fill in the blank, read enough scriptures, go to church, right? And, and instead, my, my advice is step into those triggers, practice self-compassion, watch as they transform you as you sit in your why, which is, you know, your why has to be greater than your need for comfort. And your why cannot be centered around, I'm worthy when I do this and I'm unworthy when I do that. So he actually stopped attending the group and, and it was a sad, it was a sad thing. Sometimes that happens, but I still, I'm still conscientious about showing up in my own truth. And that's a scary and a hard thing to do because sometimes it means you do lose clients. I remember this one man he would have been uh, he would have been in his 40s at the time mid 40s when i actually worked with him the way that he conducted and ran the family tended to be more militant and a little more on the dictator style that hey you're, you're gonna do as i say because i know best and his children were having a great deal of distress over this. And so when they came to me, I quickly figured out that this was really part of the problem was this father was just not very good at listening. And because of that, he was not really good at learning and certainly not very good, even though he thought he was at loving. I told him that he, his behaviors were directly responsible for the distress that his children were experiencing. And I had good reasoning and backing that I laid out the evidence for him. And you can imagine this actually set him off and got him extremely, extremely angry. The truth usually <laughs> does that to us, doesn't it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. And so you can imagine me, this young Dr. Yamada sitting there kind of almost trying not to shake in my shoes as I'm confronting and laying this out. He said, you're right. I know you're right. And I know that I am doing this to my family. This guy comes back and I'm really excited for this session because I thought we had made a great breakthrough and that this was going to be the beginning of a wonderful change. Well, that's not actually what happened. He came in and in the following session and in the first five minutes sat down and said, hey, Dr. Yamada, I've really thought about how our last session ended, but I'm not going to do it. How sad. It was terribly sad. I almost cried because I thought, wow, really? And so then I did 
up to that point, one of my second bravest things, <laughs> the first one being the session before, is I then calmly stood up and opened the door. And I told him, I think we're now done. I exited him and terminated him as a client and let him know that if he really wanted to work on this, that I would be happy to help him and that I could, but that I could not help him if he was not willing. I love that, Mark. Love that, Nikki. I'm really curious about your call sign here of Papa Osler. Can you tell our listeners about that? When I saw that, I couldn't help chuckle about that. There's got to be a story behind that. That Good question, Mark. I, I got on Twitter. I had a high school-age son, Matt, who's now a college-age son. And when I got on Twitter to interact with him and his friends, I wanted them to know I was an adult and not just a kid. So I thought I'll just call myself Papa Osler, and that sort of stuck. So that was about 10 years ago, eight years ago. And so that is part of my identity in, in this world, Papa Osler. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. I love it because to me, it denotes love, you know, it's just, just it's like a big teddy love. bear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, Mark. And Thank you. Thank you for the work your you're podcast. doing. Yes. Thank you for all that good stuff that, that you're championing out there for, for others. Richard, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, can you let our listeners know how they can contact you? What's your website uh, yeah, so, is? Um, the website is listenlearnandlove.org. You can put my name in any Google search engine, Richard Osler, O-S-T-L-E-R, and find our organization or our podcast. Our podcast is called Listen, Learn, and Love. And it's basically just people... Um, it's more than LGBTQ. Nikki brought up, you know, people working through complicated emotional issues like pornography. I'm not sure I'd call that emotion. You didn't. I'm so I don't want to call that an emotional issue and get sidetracked here, but just we're trying to have people talk about all the complicated issues right now on the podcast that you two are comfortable with and helping with. And we just need to have more conversation around these. So that's the podcast. And um, I'm just letting people share their stories because that's how we come together, I think, as the same human family. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. So thank, thank you, you for again. the good work you're doing. Yes. Yes. We so admire the efforts of you and all others out there who intentionally are doing things to promote good and just to make our lives especially. Uh, especially for those who are undermined, for those who are disadvantaged, for those who are lonely and have few places to feel connected and cared for, to create those for others that we can really do more to listen and learn and to be kind to one another. So thank you again and appreciate you being on our show as our guest today. Thank you, Mark, Nikki. Thank you so much. Such an honor. And that's it for another Backseat Driver. If you found this podcast helpful, please share it with a friend. We'd really appreciate it if you take a minute to rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.